everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of writers who sit around, drink tasty beverages, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that do not agree, but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your peanut gallery today is made up of Chaz and Karen Brinchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 153, interview with Heather, the language of Roses Jones. Heather, I simply adore that you have something coming up with Rose in it because now I can say instead of Dr. Heather Rose Jones, you are Heather, the language of roses. It's cool. <laughs> well, of course, it's uh, there is not entirely coincidence going on here. Because... I, I should hope not. I mean, something that beautiful shouldn't be just left up to chance. You know, the, 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 the full story is my great-grandmother Rose uh, is who I'm named after for my middle name. And having Rose as a middle name means that I picked roses as sort of my totem flower, uh, largely because Heather does not grow very well in California. Ah. Fair. <laughs> Fair. Rumor has it the Queen of Swords Press has put out a new novella of yours. Tell us all about The Language of Roses. So The Language of Roses is my reaction against uh, the basic themes of the Beauty and the Beast story. And I, I, will, I will confess a deep, dark secret that the inspiration to write this story happened several years ago when I was down at Disneyland with a bunch of friends and we had some time on the last day and the live action Beauty and the Beast version, the, the Disney version had just come out. So we went to see it at the theater while we were down there and I'm watching it and I'm thinking, but he's an abusive boyfriend. Why does he get redeemed? He's an abusive boyfriend. Uh, you know, why, why does it always work out that if she only loves him enough, he will change? And I said, <laughs> damn it, it, it. That's that's not how it works in real life. And so I kind of got it started writing the story of Beauty and the Beast, where the Beast is unredeemable and Beauty doesn't love him. Oh, perfect. That's brilliant. I mean, I did love Beauty from Robin McKinley, which was the first, mm -hmm. she was the first lady, I think, that really kind of took a 90 degrees sideways. So I am happy that there's another jump. Well, there, of course, there are lots of ways to go sideways. You know, I, I, I ponder the idea of how far can you bend a fairy tale before it's not the same fairy tale anymore? And believe me, I would love to do a whole panel discussion on that sometime. <laughs> oh, can you? Can I don't know. I think we could just jump in right now. It's like there's there's certain tropes. If you start with a trope, you can go any direction. Yeah. So if you if you start like Cinderella, it's like if you start with any story in which uh, a noble young, well, not noble in the aristocratic sense necessarily, but you know, a young woman of good birth and and uh, nice personality is downtrodden and uh, neglected and and you know forced to live her life for other people, uh, and then gets an opportunity to really be seen for who she is. We use the the phrase about you know like a Cinderella story for a lot of things that are not the original fairy tale structure. But the question is, if you took that original premise and then she doesn't win the prince, does not end up with the beautiful ball gown at the, at the ball, what if she decides she really enjoys cooking and she finds her place in her family by, you know, being recognized for being a great cook for the family and, and thereby, you know, is integrated into the family structure in a, uh, a healthy way? It's like, 
is that a Cinderella story? I, I don't I don't think so. But so so I had the question of, you know, how far can you break the beauty and the beast structure and have it still be a beauty and the beast story? Well, do you want to keep having a beauty and the beast story? Because the beast is abusive and he comes up with all these good reasons for why he should be abusive, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all about him. But why not break some of these stories out completely? You know, we can start from the same thing, but break it out completely and make it be the heroine's journey. Okay. Make the heroine do, you know, just go and say, screw this. I'm going to go be a knight somewhere or screw this. I'm going to go, you know, start my own cooking empire, downtown, whatever village. And just, and just make, make the story her own and not just say, you know, screw you beast, you know, you're a jerk, you know, and, and if he tries to come in, her armed guards will escort him away. And I, I like that you used the phrase, the heroine story. I, one of the books that I've read in the past year is Gail Carriger's The Heroine's Journey, which is oh. an analysis of the plot type to which the label is given The Heroine's Journey in contrast to The Hero's Journey. Uh, she really goes into, you know, what are the archetypes? What are the, the structures of this type of story? And I really recognize a lot of my own writing in it. And I think I do tend to write Heroine's Journeys where it's not about you know, getting the call and going away from home and achieving the, the gizmo and coming back again and all that. But it's, it's more about losing one's place and building an alliance to, to reconstruct community again. I'm, I'm, I'm telling this very badly. But I was going to say, for those that need to hear it from her mouth, she was episode 130 and, and gave <laughs> us a good little summary of the, you know, the difference between the Joseph Campbell Jungian theories, hero's journey versus the women. So yeah, she has, I loved her words on it. Yeah. So go listen to that episode rather than my uh, pathetic no, little summary. No, no. I, I think it's important to start talking about of like, why don't we start see more of these being applied Instead of all those fairy tales that were turned, you know, played by Grimm or Perrault or anybody else, start seeing them because they're fairy stories about girls. You know, the girls who happen to be wandering through the woods that are not rude to the little old lady the way the princes are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, also just the fact that that girls can walk through a forest and not, you know, just girls can go do things by themselves without boys. Sorry, dear. <laughs> and, you know, and, um, you know, and, but have lives that way. It's it well, and it's important. And it's always been, I've always lived my life that way, but then I'm kind of non-binary. So I would play it either way. So. Yeah. And it, it, in some ways, of course, the, the beauty and the beast template that I am working in opposition to is already broken from the original because in the original beauty and the beast it is not that the beast has a a naturally you know beastly personality but he is under a curse and of course in in my story he is also under a curse i, I kept that aspect of it in the original the beast is far more of a victim and therefore it makes more sense for him to be redeemable whereas I took more of the, the reinterpreted version in which the beastly curse on him is a punishment for his iner inherent characteristics, and therefore he has to change to be redeemed. I like the idea of someone who 
was just minding their own business and suddenly got cursed and is an asshole and then has to fight his way out. But that made, that's probably just me. Well, and there are a number of Beauty and the Beast interpretations where the beast is simply radically out, an, a social outsider and that he has become beastly in reaction to how he has been treated by society. So almost like a, a, a Mr. Darcy version of the beast where, huh. you know, he's not inherently bad, but in reaction to how people interact with him, he comes across as grumpy and gruff and, uh, and, and disapproving and all that. So I've read a number of Beauty and the Beast reinterpretations where it, it honestly is, you know, somebody loves the beast enough to see within the gruff exterior and and make a connection. And I think that's the that's the mythos that the way the story is supposed to work, that, you know, somebody who is a beast is, you know, really does just need a connection, a human connection to draw them out of their shell. And the problem comes when this mythos then gets plastered onto real life dysfunctional relationships and you end up with entire generations of women thinking that if only they love him enough he'll change yeah, <laughs> yeah. now what yeah. about do you guys know about the reverse story like that was done steel i span years ago the album i think was below the salt king henry where he's off with his merry men hunting they've caught there in a hall and suddenly the witch comes in and demands that he eats eats everything, kill your horses, kill your everything, do everything I want, make a nice bed, and then you have to lay down with me. And in the end of it, she turns into a beautiful girl because she, I think the line is, I met with many a gentle knight that gave me such a fill, but never before with a courteous knight that gave me all my will. Yeah, the, the I think it's the loathly lady. Yeah. And and the the, the punchline of it is, that um, she she tells King Henry, or you know, in, in the Arthurian tales originally, it's a different character, but she tells him that she can either be a beautiful woman by night when she's sleeping, when he's sleeping with her, and ugly during the day, or she can be beautiful by day when you know she's interacting with with people out in the world, and and ugly at night um, when 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 she's in bed with him. And the key is that he says, you choose whichever you want ah. to do. And that's, he gave her his, her will. Excellent. And that was what broke the curse. And then she's beautiful all the time. Well, of course, <laughs> naturally. Um, Heather. Yes. Do you have a grip on why the retelling, the bending, the reshaping of fairy tales has become such a thing in recent years? Because I mean, I'm not drawn to it either as a writer or a reader, but it's everywhere. And, and I'm, I'm just curious, what drives this? Sometimes it really honestly is just fashion. If there are enough fairy tale retellings out there in the world, people think of it as a medium to play with. Right. And, and, you know, if you've got enough of them that, you know, the publishing industry recognizes it as a thing, mm -hmm. then it's easier to sell. Mm -hmm. And, and also, I think we like we like variations on a theme that, that we like to see people ringing the changes on a particular motif. It is a beauty in the beast retelling because there are so many. And in 
in looking at all the different ways people are tweaking the story and coming at it from a different angle, it, it in one way, it sort of uh, consolidates and shapes the essential story because even even my story, in the way it reacts to the the common mythos that we're working with, it is reinforcing it. It is clearly a reaction against the archetypal story, which happens differently. So I'm not creating a new Beauty and the Beast mythos. I am commenting on the original way in a way that reinforces that original one as something that you 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 bounce off of, you react to, you, yeah. you reinterpret. It's a conversation. I think there's also nice tropes in it, Chaz. I mean, when you think about it, it's there's the heroism can come in any size and shape. And there's be nice to old ladies you run across in the wood and don't be a oh, jerk. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah, so you, many you of these. You can do all this in yeah. original fiction without needing to frame it within some other context. It's a personal thing. I react against this in exactly the same way that I react against fanfic, which is exactly <laughs> the same way that I react against Arthurian stories, because all Arthurian stories are fanfic. Yes. I don't well, understand why people want to play with things that are already there, rather than wafting off to do things that are new. And, and I can't say, I mean, there, there, there isn't an answer, because obviously you, you love what you love and you don't love what you don't love, and certainly there are, you know, literary subgenres out there that leave me utterly cold. I, the hard-boiled detective motif is uh, something that I just don't get the appeal of. Yeah. But, but the fact that those motifs are out there, those tropes are out there, you know, I, I'm using trope very loosely here because it's, it's not a trope. It is like a story structure. They're out there as a common vocabulary and therefore as a shorthand. So one of the reasons I think that fairy tale retellings are so popular is because it shorthands you in. And that's the same thing that makes fan fiction popular is the, the, the canon that it's ficking off of sh shorthands you in, and then you can play around with it much more efficiently. But, but, but not everybody likes that. Yeah, that's, that's an aspect I had not previously considered, but obviously you're right. And, and I can see that, though. So, yeah. There's also, it's older than you think. I mean, you think mm -hmm. of Cinderella and you think of, you know, Jacob and Marley, whatever their names were, yeah. Grimm. But Cinderella was old from China. If I remember, Proctily was like first century or something like that. And I'm going to slaughter this. Please forgive me, all of my Chinese friends. Something like Yesian. I remember I, I looked at Xian was because that was similar to the last name of the gal I played hockey with. But that was from like the year 800-something. Uh -huh. And well, Disney came later. So sim sim similar ideas will always happen. There have always been stepchildren in relationships. There have always been new mothers brought in. There have always been. So is it a trope or we just simply acknowledge that it's a trope and say, when it happens, are you telling a Cinderella story? Or are you going in a different direction? Or is it just simply a repeated trope that everyone's familiar with? Because we have these templates in our head, you know, we, we've, we've been exposed to the, the fairy tales, we've been exposed to the Arthurian stories, to the Robin Hood stories. And then when we see pattern matching in a piece of fiction, it leads us to, to map things together, whether, whether that's for good or ill. 
you know, and the example I'll use is when I was reading Anne Leckie's Ancillary series, what I saw was that each of the three books of the first trilogy was, was doing a specific motif for me, for me as a reader. Right. Um, and now I'm blanking out on what the first one was, but the second one was uh, a murder mystery. I mean, yeah. it, it was basically a murder mystery. And then the third book was Seven Go Through the World. It was, you know, the good-hearted person incidentally accumulates a, a squad uh, just by being a good and worthwhile person. And then, then all of them together are able to solve a problem that they would not have been able to solve otherwise, simply through sheer kindness and good-heartedness. I want you to know that you guys just sitting here have inspired me for how to take a fairy tale and make it modern today. So hear me out. Okay. Spinning straw into gold, taking something worthless and making it worthwhile. It's all about somebody who, a young girl who is a Bitcoin programmer. <laughs> <laughs> but she has to do a guessing, the guessing game for the guy who helps her out is basically she needs to actually figure out how to operate and do a brute force identity credential attack in order to find out who he was and to get her wallet back from him. <laughs> do it. Do it. Write it. Absolutely. <laughs> is it too geeky, too, too, too computer? No, it is geeky. That's the point. That's your audience. So write for that. But that's the point. It's like, so, so Chaz, he, you know, feeling with this, this is a modern retelling of the story of Rumpelstiltskin, you know, the spinning straw into gold. But at the same time, it's everybody will understand that immediately and think, oh, right, but Bitcoin, you know, for good or bad, is that is that taking dross? Is it? You won't necessarily, if you write it well enough, and I know you will, it won't be obviously uh, Rumpelstiltskin. It'll be one of those later going, oh, that was Rumpelstiltskin. So yeah. Right yeah, I had fun sort of layering in other folktales and motifs in Language of Roses. Uh, and it's going to be fun to, to see if how many people can identify them. I mean, there's the obvious one of the, you know, the girl who speaks in flowers and, and gems. Yeah. Uh, but, but then there's also the fairy wife. And, you know, and there's a couple other, you know, not quite Easter eggs, but things slipped in there where I had fun because mm -hmm. that's how my brain works. It's called The Language of Roses. And I know about the language of flowers. Indeed, I have a book about the language of flowers. Is there a separate language of roses or is it just included within the whole language of flowers? It, it's, it's part of the language of flowers. Right. And, and roses themselves, of course, have a fairly elaborate set of signals. Yep. But when I was writing this, I, I drew on the flower lore of all different kinds of flowers uh, because I needed a larger vocabulary yeah. to speak in. Yeah. And, well, and every meaning that a rose has within the story is based on some actual flower meaning. Yeah. I'm, I'm dying to know if yellow roses are, I'm sorry I slept with that other girl because that kind of defined my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, the 80s and 90s, it was, it was a rough time. Yeah, it is, was, yeah. Is it historic in the way of like Madeline Robbins wrote Sold for Endless Rue, telling the, you know, retelling the story of Rapunzel? Is this kind of another version of a historic perspective or is it now? Tell us the timing it's set in. 
So I tried to set it pretty much in the early mid 18th century because I wanted a, an anchor for all of my um, material cultural references. So there isn't really a, a date given anywhere in it, but all of the, the clothing, the food, the dances, um, un background economics are meant to be compatible with early, mid 18th century France. And then of course there's fairy. What are your thoughts on, and this is a deliberate question because I read your blog from this last month. <laughs> <laughs> See, when you do your homework, uh -huh. you had a whole kind of diatribe on what makes historic fantasy historic. And I liked the way that you kind of were talking about, does it just make it an add a bit of fairy or can you make it anywhere? Or again, watching Bridgerton right now, could we have fairies show up in Bridgerton and have them be just as real and add it a little bit more? Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah. So, so of course, the, I have my suspicions about that woman with the cane. So, so of course, the the hidden trick behind my my little I would not call it a rant, but it was a discussion of how historic is a fairy tale retelling is because the the entirety of how I strategize the books I talk about in my podcast, Queer Women in Historical Fiction, is such that my definition includes everything I write. <laughs> I mean, you know, I like it. You know, it, it's, it's perfectly mercenary and, and self-centered and all that. But to some extent, because I am a history geek, everything I write is historically grounded in some fashion. And, and therefore, it makes sense that that is, at some level, my gut understanding of what it means for a story to be historical, even when it's fantasy. So for me, fantasy is historical when you can actually match it up to some actual real-world historic culture, a, a time and a place. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be set in a real-world place. If that real world, if the if the fictional place it's set in exists within our world, so for example, Alpenia in my Alpenia series is not a real place; it's an invented Ruritania type place. But geographically, it does exist in Europe. It has, you know, you you can travel from Alpenia to France or to Switzerland or to Germany or wherever. It, it exists within that history, and it's very tied down in terms of specific dates. Uh, all of the historic events that are happening outside of Alpenia are actual, real historical events. I just come up with alternate explanations for why they happen. So, when I was thinking about a fairy tale retelling, what would make it historic? It would be that the, the setting of the story is in some way rooted in not only the past, but a specific identifiable culture. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, but you wouldn't, I mean, un, under those strictures, I don't think my Uchiman novels count because they are set in, I mean, they are, they are very much a transposition of the Crusader states after the First Crusade, but they're set in clearly in another world it's not it's not this world it's not this time and that's that's something that i i debate with myself when i'm so in my podcast the, the lesbian historic motif podcast one of the things i do 
is every month talk about new books that have come out that fit within my framework of queer female protagonists and it is in some fashion a historic story mm -hmm. and for example i look at the the delightful rash of sapphic fantasies with uh, I'm going to say Asian settings, and forgive me, I know Asia is not a place, uh, <laughs> but like uh, Tasha Suri's The Jasmine Throne, uh, Shelley Parker Chan's uh, She Who Became the Sun, mm -hmm. K. Arsenal Rivera's Japanese, Chinese, Mongolian-inspired um, Phoenix Empress is the one I'm in the middle of right now. And these are all stories where the, the setting is very clearly inspired by, but not actually. Yeah a particular culture. And I like being inclusive when I do these book listings. And so I have included all of those as you know historic fantasy within the, the remit of, of my podcast. But the less I'm familiar with a culture's history, the harder it is for me to say, is this a reflex of an actual historic culture, or is this an entirely secondary world a story that is flavored by elements from a real culture? So like, like the Ultramero ultra stories. And, and I know that especially for uh, some of the African-inspired fantasy, I, I realize that I just, I don't know enough about are these elements, historic elements that are being incorporated into the story, or are these fantastic elements that are inventions, but flavored from specific cultures. Mm -hmm. And, and it really, you know, makes me realize my limitations as, uh, you know, as a curator of fiction, mm -hmm. when I run across these walls where it's like, I don't know if I'm being even-handed in which books I include and which ones I don't. Right. So what are you working on next, Dr. Jones? Uh, I'm working on getting my writing mojo back. Right. Um, I honestly have written almost no new fiction since the beginning of the pandemic. Oh. And it is, it is not the pandemic as such, but it, it disrupted my daily routines. And I'm a very routine-bound writer. So it used to be that my writing habit was I would take a little dictaphone in the car with me when I commuted to work and I would dictate bits and pieces of story as I drove from Concord into Berkeley. And then I would go sit at the Pete's Coffee Shop in Emeryville and I would um, transcribe my dictation and uh, rinse, lather and repeat. And that would be how I would get stuff down on uh, electrons. And well, I'm not commuting anymore. So I've got all this free time, you know, that I could be writing in. And when, when the pandemic started and I started doing full-time work from home, my theory was, well, instead of getting out of bed at six in the morning so that I can uh, get on the road uh, before rush hour and then I can have my hour in the coffee shop, uh, I will get up at six in the morning and I will have two hours to write before I have to open up the work computer. Huh. Uh, that, yeah, that's yeah. not the reason. Yeah. Yeah, um, that that doesn't happen. They used to say, if you really want something done, give it to an already busy person. <laughs> yeah. So instead, the working from home has meant that I cook a hot breakfast every morning. I have gotten an awful lot of gardening done. I have decluttered my house and I keep up with my housework. And at the end of the day, I have been staring at a computer screen so much more intensely than I used to in the office 
that my brain is fried. And I'm kind of stuck in this, this pattern where the places in my life where I used to write are not happening in the same way and I have not made new places. And I think I may have to go back to my old thing of uh, writing longhand just to get away from the screen. Or oh, 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 you could go back to your old habit, get up at six o'clock, drive from <laughs> where into a... a, a no, no. No. <laughs> and, 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 and go to the peach coffee shop and, and do all that without the need to go to work. No. No. <laughs> no. But then it's still sitting in a coffee shop and other people are nasty still. So, Well, it, actually, I've, I've started going back to coffee shops and I can be productive in coffee shops in ways that I'm not at home because there are certain things that my, my brain does when I'm in a coffee shop. Yeah, I hear but, you. Uh, I st- as I say, I still appreciate your blog and your works out there because uh, you may not know it, but I've been passing your name here and there to many of my more sapphically oriented hockey friends that are interested in, hey, where is all the lesbian fiction, et cetera. So <laughs> I just wanted to know that you are appreciated. Oh, good. Not just for, for coming on our show today, but you are appreciated by people out there for the fact that you are doing that work of gathering it together and telling people about it. Well, I love hearing that because... Honestly, the, the blog and podcast are also what is eating up what would otherwise be my writing time because, well, because they have more concrete and short-term deadlines. And so there's always that sense of, well, I need to get this out of the way and then my brain will be free to work on writing. And of course it never is. Yeah. Uh, but it's podcast. I don't know if you guys know this, but podcasting is really lonely work. Yeah. Really? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And, and that, that, you know, getting any kind of feedback from people that says, it's like, you know, yes, I know you exist and I listen to you and I would notice if you weren't there anymore. That's really hard to get. Delighted that the word sapphic has come into use in a distinctive, different manner than lesbian. Yeah. Because people were getting so tied up in the idea of basically the well, of course, it's, it's gone through like, you know, pendulum swings and shifts and all that. But people gotten all tied up in a very strict definition of lesbian that did not leave room for talking about the larger, messier, more fuzzy world of women who love women, even if they also love other people. Mm-hmm. Or people who are femme, but maybe not women who love other femme, but not necessarily women people. And Absolutely. True story. Well, we will put links to stories and your blog and your exciting upcoming new novella that we've mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, Heather. Well, I was delighted, and it's really exciting to look forward to the novella coming out tomorrow as of when we're recording this, but it will be, of course, in the past by the time it airs. (laughs) That is true. And we will have the link up there of all the different places you can buy it. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineers and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Lingberg. Michael Lingberg is on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, The Bean Scene Coffee Shop, whatever coffee shop you love best, and Arm Street over in Ukraine. And hey, thanks for listening.